Welcome to Human Stories with Jill Hazard Rowe, where we explore humanity in all of its realms. Today's guest is Michael Ferguson. Michael, thank you so much for coming into the studio today. My pleasure. It's an honor to be here. To start off our podcast today, Michael, do you, can you um, introduce yourself to our audience? Sure. Uh, I grew up in Virginia, went to high school at a science and technology high school, and so have been a nerd for a long time. <laughs> went to Brigham Young University for my undergraduate degree. There's a lot of different crazy directions that we could go from there, but to keep it short for now, pursued graduate work in bioengineering, specifically doing neural imaging, and did a first postdoctoral fellowship at Cornell University using brain imaging techniques in the context of human development. And now I'm doing a second postdoctoral fellowship at Harvard Medical School through the Department of Neurology and focusing on some cognitive neurological problems like memory. Really? That's amazing. So through all this education that you've had, what what kind of things can you do to help your fellow man? Like, what does this lead you to? Mm -hmm. So the next phase for my personal professional development is to move into brain stimulation. So I've been doing brain imaging, where I localize a particular circuit that's related to something that is going wrong or something that we're trying to understand more closely. So using memory again as an example, once we identify a circuit that is involved with supporting memory functions, mm -hmm. we can then start thinking about using some brain stimulation technology. So whether that's a non-invasive form of brain stimulation, okay. one, for example, it's called transcranial magnetic stimulation. So cranium is the skull. So transcranial meaning it's going through the skull as opposed to a surgical deep brain stimulation. And with the transcranial magnetic stimulation technologies, you can focus on a really localized area, put different frequencies of pulsation into that circuit, whether it's you know gamma stimulation or theta stimulation, depending on what you're trying to do to that circuit. Okay. And then either increase the activity within that circuit mm -hmm. or decrease the activity in that circuit. So this is medical technology that's just emerging right now. And there are so, so many promising directions that could be applied. So it sounds fascinated. Would that help like with depression? And mm -hmm. I mean, once you are able to pinpoint the, the, the memories or whatever that are affecting the person, then that could be a tool for those kind of things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so depression is actually one of the few approved medical applications for TMS, transcranial magnetic stimulation, right now. Um, with depression, our lab is doing some work to get to symptom-specific treatments because the, the disease category of depression is very problematic in the sense that it's very, very heterogeneous. So you could have someone who is having more of a manic display of behavior and emotion as opposed to someone who's having total lack of pleasure or lack of interest in right. anything in their life. And so those symptoms are very different, but they're both called the same thing. They're both called right. depression. And right now, it's great that we have some depression treatments that are focusing on the, you know, the general set of symptoms that come with depression. But to really move things forward into a personalized medicine direction and to a precision medicine direction, we're going to have to start looking at specific symptoms as opposed to the entire disease right. as a whole. 
like get a little more specific of why someone is experiencing certain emotions or feelings. That's right. And then from a brain circuit therapeutics point of view, mm-hmm. focusing on what is the target that matches this specific symptom in the individual. We're going to get into your own personal story. Mm-hmm. Um, but from what I've read and heard about you, you have experienced trauma in your life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> did any of that? Did Welcome any... <laughs> to the Club of Humanity. <laughs> yeah, I guess we all have, right? Just yeah. when we're brave enough to like face it, face it uh, head on. But did that pique your interest in this kind of um, profession that you've? Yeah, <laughs> it's a little bit of a sad background context in the sense that one of the things that really drew me into neuroscience and into brain imaging and brain modulation was my desire not to be gay. Mm. Growing up, I really thought if I can just get in there and fix what Mm. needs to be flipped in my brain or in my psyche, then I can be heterosexual. And so for years, I was looking for the point of leverage either in my mind or in my physical brain to flip some kind of switch yeah. and change my sexual orientation. Right. So that was one of the things that drove my early interest in the brain. I will say that that wasn't the only thing driving my interest in understanding the brain, that the other major contributing factor was spirituality. Mm. I really still to this day want to understand what is going on in people's brains when they have some of these transcendent, very self-expanding types of life experiences. Like when someone has a very deep spiritual experience. Now, this is pretty profound because, you know, I I was, oh, I I just said past tense. I still am engaged in the LDS church to Mm -hmm. some extent, but um, I've really taken a... I've really changed since my son came out. And I think that's frustrating to some people when you still hang on to an organization that is so hurtful to a community that I truly love. But it's hard to explain those spiritual experiences Mm -hmm. you've had in the past that make you who you are today. Like, how do you divorce Mm -hmm. yourself from all of that? Yeah. No, and it sounds crazy to people who haven't had experiences (laughs) but i don't know but sometimes they feel more real than physical reality yeah yeah wow interesting so interesting well let's backpedal here and talk about (laughs) (laughs) you like when did you know as a little boy that you were different I mean you had this desire to change something in your brain Mm -hmm. did did you know you were different from a very young age or how did that all happen I would say that I had moments of awareness really really fleeting moments of awareness through middle school and through high school to the point where even On two separate occasions in high school, I started to confide in a friend Mm -hmm. that I was experiencing same-sex attraction, but then I backpedaled really quickly and pretended that I never said that. Um, (laughs) Because of their reaction or mostly just because you weren't ready? Because of my own internalized homophobia and because it evoked this panic emotion Mm -hmm. for me to even start thinking about sexual identity in concrete terms. Mm -hmm. It was really my first year 
at BYU when I realized, okay, this is a thing (laughs) that I'm not just imagining in my, you know, in my head. um, And this thing is not just disappearing the way that I had hoped that it would. And so I didn't come out, as it were, to a bishop or to any priesthood leaders, but it was my freshman year at BYU when I started making prayer bargains with Mm -hmm. God Mm -hmm. and saying, well, if you change this aspect of who I am, then I'll... Do this. Exactly. Give this many years of service or I'll, you know, fill in the blank for how you're going to make some kind of bargain with God. Yeah. I think the sad part about that is you pictured God being the church. Mm. (laughs) So were you bargaining with God or were you bargaining with Mm. the church to be able to stand and be in, you know, good standing with the church? Right. Yeah. No, that's a really good point. Uh, Yeah. When can we ever confidently say that we're not adoring an idol? Right. I think that there, again, this is, you know, going off into deeper spiritual topics that we can address, certainly. But I think that the spiritual journey is a constant letting go. That if you just think philosophically about what that means, to have some kind of being that is supremely benevolent and supremely good and supremely wise, there's just no way that our limited human mind can ever understand that. And so I think that a part of the spiritual path is a constant letting go of these previous overly simplified ideas that we had about divinity. So yes, to your point <laughs> that that I was bargaining with the version of God that I had been given at that point in my life. Right. How'd that work out? <laughs> I, you know, I was convinced that I was going to go through my entire life keeping my same-sex attractions a secret and that maybe on my deathbed, mm-hmm. that this would be some dramatic confession. And then, you know, someone in the future would feature this in a general conference talk about how, you know. <laughs> you were so dedicated. You were so valuable. But yet you faithful. never changed. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I could, yeah, well, that would be awesome, but at a great sacrifice. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I really went on my mission thinking that this bargain was going to work out, that I was just going to be a super, super faithful, dedicated missionary. Mm-hmm. And a part of the blessing and the reward for that is that I would come back either with diminished feelings of same-sex attractions or with a new heterosexual orientation. Yeah. You know, and we're, we're like a covenant-making people, right? So it makes sense that we make these bargains with God. I've done that. Mm. I've done that mm-hmm. um, from some decisions I've made in as a child or as a youth, you know? So yeah, we we tend to really be good at bargaining. But when we don't get, you know, the answers that we need or the answers that we're looking for can be devastating. Absolutely. So after your mission, what did you do from there? I started dating women. Um, I started working at the temple. I was, again, at BYU still. And so I was an ordinance worker for early morning sessions at the Provo Temple. And it was actually during that period of time as a temple worker that I would say I started having 
seeds of personal revelation. Again, some of these, you know, spiritual buzz terms like revelation, I have to put an asterisk next to because yeah, what's that there's mean? a huge, exactly, what does that mean? How do you understand it? Mm-hmm. That's a whole discussion in and of itself. But suffice for now to say that during that period of time as a temple worker, that I started perceiving content of the LDS Temple Endowment in a way that I hadn't perceived or understood it before. You know, so for example, one of the ways that LDS doctrine understands the, you know, the Garden of Eden Mm -hmm. allegory, if you will, is that Eve was wise and that Eve realized, oh, wait a second, there's a particular set of rules that I was given, but in order for me to grow into spiritual adulthood, Mm -hmm. I have to violate those rules and leave the simplicity and the comfort of the garden. Oh, did that ring true to your identity and give you permission that I must leave this garden? It was, ah, that's the thing is that I felt spiritual promptings toward that Mm -hmm. direction, Mm -hmm. but I wasn't brave brave enough or courageous enough to just really go with it at the time. Right. Just sort of slowly giving yourself permission. To even think about it. To think about it. Or talk about it. Mm-hmm. Much wow. less to accept what I view as spiritual intelligence that was trying to guide me right. in a more accelerated direction. Yeah. So at some point, this is, uh, a lot of people know this, you um, decided to do reparative therapy. hmm You want to tell our audience about that, why you decided to do that, what it was like? Sure. I started going to conversion therapy at BYU, um, and it was because the bishop who I had said, this is something that a lot of men in the ward have struggled with and that students have overcome. And I mean, I really didn't even have a reason to question its efficacy or not going along well, with and you, this. Well, and you found out you weren't alone. A lot of men. Right. Yeah. And that, wow, wow there's a therapist at the counseling center <laughs> at the university who specializes in this. Yeah. I, I felt, God's campus. Yeah. I felt such a relief. This was great. This was wonderful news. Um, and so started going to um, cognitive behavioral therapy with the intention to reorient, you know, sexually and emotionally. Um I continued to do sessions at the BYU Counseling Center, you know, for the remainder of the time that I was at Brigham University. Mm-hmm. When I graduated, I moved out to Boston um, and started participating in an Exodus International Affiliated Group. So Exodus was a Christian mm, conversion therapy. Can ther- excuse me, conversion therapy is a big part of Exodus, but it wasn't exclusively a conversion therapy organization. Okay. But it was basically an organization for gender and sexual minorities who are trying to maintain a hetero cisnormative life. Okay. Long story short. <laughs> oh, no, I don't want it to be short. <laughs> um, I started trying some more aggressive and more fringe therapeutic methods, you know, things that involved non-licensed providers, life coaches, um, retreat weekends where there was lots of 
nudity that was involved in the prescribed exercises, hypnotherapy. In those years of desperately trying any approach to changing my sexual orientation, I was just worn down more and more and more and just defeated more and more and more. And uh, for me, it was specifically an incident involving abuse with a provider that kind of created this um, this breakdown. Yeah. And pulled out of all of the programs that I was participating in, pulled out of all of the various therapeutic modalities that I was trying and just went through a period of reconfiguring what exactly my goals were and what I was willing to do to achieve those goals. Realized, so at this time, I'm in my late 20s. Can I ask you how long from the time you started therapy at BYU to your time in Boston? How, mm-hmm. What was the length of that time? Um, so the length of the entire time where I was doing various conversion therapy approaches was for most of my 20s. Wow. So maybe a decade. Mm-hmm. Oh, Michael. And that spanned Provo, Boston, New York City, and Salt Lake City. Wow. So even places where you picture they're much more progressive. <laughs> you know, that's the thing that really boggles people's minds is, um, you know, they are not totally surprised to hear that conversion therapy is happening in Utah or places where they associate the culture with maybe more conservative social values. Mm -hmm. But when people realize that places like Boston, New York City, even lots of places in Southern California are hotbeds for conversion therapy to this day, it catches people off guard. Yeah. But you have to understand that in all of these places, you have such a broad diversity of humanity that you've got Orthodox Jews and conservative Mormons and evangelical Christians and committed Muslims. You have people from all sorts of social and cultural contexts Mm -hmm. in these major urban centers. And in each one of these centers as well, you're going to have people doing conversion therapy catering to this demographic who's experiencing such emotional and spiritual desperation. Yeah. So after after a decade, you realized it sounds like because of something that that was a trauma, something that happened to you, that you realized you needed to step away and figure out what your own goals were. Mm-hmm. And, and do you mind sharing, or is that a little bit too private? No, that's fine. Um, for me, the first process was a spiritual process um, where it was one of stepping back from my religious certainty mm-hmm. and really re-examining what do I think about the history of Christianity, the history of, you know, Western religion. I mean... What you had been taught, you wanted to reevaluate on your own terms. That's right. And it was important to me to start with the spiritual questions mm-hmm. um, because really, if I had come to a place of concluding that, okay, homosexuality is just my cross to bear, right? then I would have carried that cross. I mean, I don't know, maybe I would have wimped out a few years <laughs> into it and put it down, but I, I think anyways that my belief in devotion was sincere enough that if 
that truly is what I felt called to sacrifice. That that is what I would sacrifice. But that's one of the reasons why it was so important for me to disentangle the questions about sexuality and sexual orientation from the questions about spirituality and my personal connection to the sense of the divine. Right. That's amazing. So what did you learn in that journey? Uh, (laughs) (laughs) A lot of things. I mean, at some some point in this evaluation of your life and your divinity and who you are, did you have that moment where you knew God created you just as you are and that you were perfect? That was one of the big penetrating insights that I had. Um, and this is a line, again, that comes from the Mormon temple, um, where individuals who go through LDS temple teachings are instructed that their highest purpose in this life is to fulfill the measure of their creation. And you look at something like conversion therapy and realize that you're committing your finances, your time, your psyche to fighting against the measure of your creation. And having that epiphany moment to see that my entire life had been oriented around the goal of fighting my creation as opposed to fulfilling my creation was a very paradigmatic shift for me. That had to have been so, like, liberating. It was. And, you know, another thing, too, that um, isn't quite as um, esoteric but Mm -hmm. was also very liberating for me was to realize that even within the Christian tradition outside of Mormonism, that being single for your whole life is totally okay. (laughs) Which again, that might sound like such a small thing. Yeah. But even just getting mentally and emotionally to the place where I realize that if I'm single for the rest of my life, Mm -hmm. that's okay. Right, because... We're taught so much about getting married and procreating and what our purpose is and all of that. Totally. And that you're not complete unless you have someone that you're pair bonded with. Yeah. And um, all around families. And so, yeah, that's a very interesting point that you even came to the conclusion, hey, if I am single my whole life, I will be okay with that. Yeah. And again, I can't overstate how much of a relief that realization was. And it might sound so basic, but when you're socialized into a particular ideal, mm-hmm. it's really hard to rewire that. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Takes some real effort. <laughs> real effort. So obviously you didn't stay single. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Before we get into that. So you were okay with being single. You were starting to reconstruct how you felt about deity, about how you felt about yourself. Where did those, um, when you were enlightened with that, where did that push you? Mm-hmm. Um, for me, it pushed me toward the divine feminine. I had had such a sense of betrayal that it was really hard for me to fully put a sense of trust in a patriarchal, spiritual, organizational framework. But uh, I just felt very naturally connected to whether it was representations of Mother Mary or, you know, Heavenly Mother, um, 
just that 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 image and that sensibility of this this mother god just still wanting to love me independent of what my life choices looked like was one that was um very real to me um a real like maternal attachment yeah to who you are and i would say that that persisted for a number of years even to where you know i felt like my main spiritual nourishment was coming from that sense of the divine feminine as opposed to necessarily the you know the masculine divine yeah yeah oh wow that's really beautiful michael that's really beautiful. So did you stay attached to any kind of organization? Or at this point, was your spirituality between you and your maker? Um, the, are you and your feminine, however you were starting to feel connected? Yeah. So I think that it still is a negotiation process right now. Um, negotiating between my own personal sense of spirituality, between relationships, you know, having... A husband who has his own independent spiritual journey um, and intellectual journey and emotional journey is another variable that makes it a complicated equation. So at one point, my husband and I um, got confirmed in the Community of Christ, which used to be known as a reorganized LDS church, and felt particularly a strong sense of historical connection to the heritage of Mormonism. Um, My husband has pioneer ancestry on both his maternal and paternal sides of his family. Um, And so the Mormon narrative is one that has a very strong sense of, obligation is a little bit too strong of a word, but my husband and I still feel like we owe something to Mormonism. I always think it's like almost part of our DNA. Mm. Yeah, and, and for Seth in particular, it really is. Both of my parents were first-generation converts to the LDS Church. But, you know, especially where he has relatives who came to the United States from Sweden and crossed the plains, like, that does, that that gets yeah. into your... Yeah, your, your, it's your heritage. <laughs> yeah, your family it's your DNA. pedigree. Uh-huh. <laughs> so when did you meet Seth? We met when I was in graduate school at the University of Utah, Uh, And we actually met on Facebook. He was living in Phoenix, Arizona at the time. And I was living in Salt Lake City. And he popped up. It was a friend you may know suggestion. of course. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) That's how I get my friends. (laughs) Exactly, yeah. And so started messaging with him. Said, oh, I think that we met at a party at one point. I knew that we had and I just wanted to start up a conversation with him. You're a liar. (laughs) (laughs) And then you know, found that we had a lot in common to chat about, that we were both really taken with the ways that the other saw various perspectives. At the time, we were both very involved in the LGBT, LDS discourse. And so after, you know, a number of weeks of chatting and talking on the phone, I flew down to Arizona and we met in person. And the rest is now history. <laughs> yeah, you guys are awesome. Like, you know, like I said, I, I've met you a couple of times in person. Most of 
you know, I'm a stalker, so I watch it on <laughs> Facebook. But it just always makes me happy to see such successful a sex, successful relationship because I think a lot of times with our LGBTQ youth, they don't have those role models. They don't have, especially when you're raised in a very orthodox religion, you don't have role models, mm. right? Mm-hmm. And so you and Seth are such a great example of a committed relationship, mm. of of love, of why companionship is important, mm. mm-hmm. right? I mean, I remember telling my bishop, I cannot tell my child he's perfect in the eyes of God, which I know to be true. But to tell him in the next sentence, to mm. be okay with God, you need to be celibate. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's emotional trauma. God created us all for a purpose. So thank you to you and Seth. No, that's a lot of pressure. You can never get divorced. <laughs> no, you know, humanity is complicated with everybody, every marriage, every relationship. But um, my point is we need more examples like you guys. Mm, well, I appreciate that. I, as you're talking, it's making me think also about how in Scripture, you know, in Genesis, this is, you know, now ancient wisdom literature, and one of the very first observations it makes about human nature is that it's not good for a human to be alone. Yeah. And we see that repeatedly from medical studies that are looking at social isolation and chronic loneliness. That's just not how we're wired to be. No. And I think that, you know, before gay marriage was legalized, for the big fight to not have it legalized to somehow protect traditional families, I think that comes from a a place of great privilege because Mm. I don't think married couples realize the benefits they have. Mm -hmm. Like for me, I know everyone maybe thinks about sex. Well, I don't like to think about my straight kids or my gay kids' sex lives. That's just, (laughs) I don't want to think about that. But a relationship is built on watching a movie with someone, being able to curl up at night and be able to share, you know, Mm -hmm. your your life with someone else. Mm -hmm. It's about someone caring if you're sick or not. Yeah, it's about having a safe haven, about having a a secure base. I will, yes, yes to all of this. And at the same time, I will say that I don't think that you need to be married to experience that. And I only say that because I'm just a little bit concerned that we might inadvertently be complicit Mm -hmm. in this um, kind of Western Disney romantic notion that it's like, (laughs) oh, you know, unless you have your prince or princess charming, then... You won't be complete as a person. I'm like, no, 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 you, yes, you will be complete as a person. Right. It's beautiful to have your prince or princess charming, but you don't need that in order to have an amazing, whole, complete and fulfilling life. Thank you for that point. I think that's very important, Michael. I mean, fulfillment in life has to start with yourself, right? Once you feel good about yourself, feel whole, feel of your divinity, that's when you can... I think have really like successful relationships. Like mm-hmm. you said, it doesn't have to always lead to marriage. But when a part of society was denied that, mm-hmm. then that's the problem right. I have. Right. Like it should be an option for everyone to be able to be married. And I mean, there's just so many like legal benefits of being married, right? Yeah. <laughs> so that has to be 
an option for everyone in my book. So thank goodness that that gay marriage was legalized, that we are moving forward. Um, so one of your claim to fame is that, you know, let's give a shout out for all those that were in the thick of making marriage, gay marriage legal, but you and Seth were able to be the first ones married in Salt Lake City. That's true. It was wild. <laughs> um, and there's a funny backstory to this. So uh, Judge Shelby is the federal judge who had made the ruling that created marriage equality in the state of Utah uh, on December 20th, 2013. The day before that, on December 19th, 2013, Seth and I were in the process of planning a direct action. We were going to have a protest at the marriage clerk's office or the you know the clerk's office where they issue marriage licenses yeah um and the concept for the action was that on valentine's day we would have same-sex couples apply for marriage licenses and that they would have a big denied rubber stamp on their marriage license application and then we would do photos and you know the we had the domain name love denied and it was going to be to bring attention and awareness to the fact that here are individuals in our society trying to exercise their basic rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and that the right to the pursuit of love is being denied. So it was December 19th. I was down at the clerk's office. I was talking to the staff. I was explaining that we were going to be very peaceful, very respectful, that we weren't going to be disruptive. Um, and everyone was on board and understood the vision of what we were going to be doing. So it was December 19th. Then December 20th comes along. And both Seth and I are getting messages and phone calls from our attorney who's saying, if you're serious about getting married, you need to go down right now. Because there's a legal window where the state has to give you a marriage license. And he said, we don't know if that's going to be a five-minute window, a 15-minute window, a five-week window. But if you're serious about getting married, go down now. And at the time, Seth and I had been engaged. I had proposed to him the previous summer when we were in Japan. And we looked at each other. We said, this is one of those once-in-a-lifetime shots. And jumped in the car and went straight down to the clerk's office. Since I had just been there the day before, prepping the staff for this love-denied action, when I got into the office and started applying for a marriage license, they thought that I was doing a practice run. Ah. And so I handed my marriage license application and the particular employee who I'd been working with the day before kind of winked at me and was like, you know, at this time, the state of Utah is not permitted to give you a marriage license. And I said, oh, I'm not doing a practice run. This is this is the real deal right now. And pulled up the email to show her Judge Shelby's decision and she gasped. So the, the staff didn't even They know. didn't even know. Yeah, we got down there before they had even been given the news of what had happened. And Seth and I were expecting that the line for marriage licenses was going to be out the door. Right. We were we were totally surprised that we were... That you had to inform the staff. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it was okay with an email. Right, right. And so Sim Gill, who is a district attorney, came in, said, we need to debrief and discuss what's happening. Don't lose your place in line. <laughs> and so at this point... Um, uh, Seth is texting Derek Kitchen and Moody, um, who were plaintiffs in the lawsuit that precipitated this ruling from Judge Shelby. And we were saying, you know, we've got a place in line. If you guys can come down here right now, 
like go ahead and be the first married because of uh, legal technicalities with their case they weren't going to be pursuing marriage at that time um apparently it might have put into question whether they still had a claim if they were married etc cetera, etc cetera. right point being that they said we're going to wait and see how everything shakes out so Seth and I are there. We're waiting for Simgil to come back. A few minutes later, he comes into the room and says, we're proceeding with giving out marriage licenses now. Wow. And that's that was the moment where electricity just shot through my body. And I had to realize that this was happening, that we were getting a marriage license from the state of Utah. What... <sighs> What a miraculous turn of events! Because the day before you were ready to fight for that right, right? And then you go in. It was in, so wild. And again. the staff knows nothing. They think you're there to fight. Yep. And actually, you were then given the legal right to be married. It was wild. At that point, did the line start getting long? Um, it took a little bit of time for it to really pick up and for the word to get out. Bob Henlon was a reporter for the Q Salt Lake, which is a local LGBTQ publication in town. Uh And he came when Seth had tweeted out that the clerk's office was offering marriage licenses because Q Salt Lake wasn't sure if Seth was punking social media or if this was legitimate. So when the county decided to proceed and offer Seth and I, a Seth and me, a marriage license, then Bob Henlon reported back to the QSAT Lake and Michael Aaron and said, no, this is really happening. So then the QSAT Lake put it out on their social media platform. Um, you know, Fox News local affiliate showed up. Then once you had QSAT Lake, who was the first to really break the story, and the local mainstream affiliates who were getting the word out, that's when you had hundreds and hundreds of people that were starting to pour in for marriage licenses. I can't even imagine the feelings one would go through when that happened. I mean, as a mother of a gay child, I remember like we got texts that it was happening and there was gonna be a big celebration downtown. I can't remember the venue at this point, but Lee and I at that time were still very, um, our son came out in 2011, was still very attached to the church and trying to make things work with our Orthodox religion and supporting our son. And, and he wasn't even really out yet. like. So anyway, long story short, we went to this venue and there were all these news people there. And I just remember my husband and I, we were like standing behind pillars. That's so funny, (laughs) trying to hide. Yes, we were like, and then just sort of we were, I felt like an observer of of the event had happened and, and looking at the elation and the excitement and... Just, it was just a sacred moment for me because I was really an observer. Mm. I just watched. I watched couples come in. I watched, you know, people crying. I watched just the elation. I think James DeBacchus, mm-hmm. I think he he proposed to his boyfriend at mm. that at that event. James, I might be wrong. Don't <laughs> don't come after me. But he was there and he did speak and he might have just talked about how now he had the opportunity to do that and they had been together for years you know Mm. so that was a that was a very beautiful um, moment for a heterosexual woman also Mm. and the elation lasted as well Mm. that for for days afterward we really felt like we were on cloud nine and just walking around it felt different 
I really did emotionally experience a change in my citizenship. I know that might sound very did grandiose. You, did you feel like more equal? I definitely I mean, did. we throw that word around We do. A lot. We throw that word around a lot and we use it rhetorically. But there was a very profound emotional change that felt more equal mm-hmm. after that particular ruling had been handed down. Sort of, I have this question for you. Because sometimes I think when we're in, in in the fight for something and then we actually get what we've been fighting for, mm. <laughs> did you have sort of a loss of a purpose? That sounds really weird, but no, do you know no, what I, I mean? Because totally. I know I'm in a fight for things, right? Right. And when you receive them, where do you put all that energy and emotion? And I think that that exact question is one that the broader coalition of LGBTQ communities are grappling with right now. Because for so many years, marriage was really the organizing principle for these Mm -hmm. various coalitions of people. Um, And right now, we're at a place in these intersectional movements where there is no one singular topic that is as unifying as marriage had been. My husband and I do feel some sense of purpose around the conversion therapy Mm -hmm. battles, but it's different. And again, it, it as of yet hasn't garnered as much cohesiveness as the marriage battles did. Right. Because marriage is like a universal thing that could be an opportunity for everyone. Whereas not everyone has experienced conversion therapy. I mean, it just became illegal. Well, I'm not sure if it has yet this month. Mm-hmm. I mean, but that, that battle has been fought in Utah, and it will be illegal for minors to have reparative therapy. But then again, you know, there's so many people that never even knew that existed. Like, what? You right. know, when I would say something about reparative therapy, they're like totally in denial that that could even happen. Yeah. So that, that reparative therapy requires education Mm -hmm. and for people to understand what it does to someone for everyone to have the same passion for it yeah it is it's a more complicated story and like you're saying fewer people have direct experience with it yeah but marriage marriage equality hits everyone regardless if you're on board or not like Mm -hmm. that's that's a buzz (laughs) right yeah um i know for me like i was totally against marriage quality. Sorry, mm. Michael. I was too. <laughs> oh, good. So we were probably like the same, you know, for Prop 22 before Prop mm-hmm. 8. I was in a leadership position in California and I fought for traditional marriage, never getting on my knees to find out if what I was doing was what I should be doing, right? Mm. And then a mother of six children, when one of your kids comes out, it's like, oh, for hell's sake. Mm. What have I been doing, and how do I feel about this subject? And that's that's sort of a beautiful journey that I've been able to get on because I have a gay son to really figure these things out. And that's, you know, I came on board with marriage equality pretty quickly, wanting my son to be protected under the laws of our nation if he chose to be married. Mm-hmm. And it was just a very simple transition for me. And so... When it did happen, a little shock, a little excitement, a little like, is this really happening? Mm. You know, because it was such a big thing that had taken 
forever mm. to mm-hmm. get to. Do you think that if you did not have a son who had come out as gay, that you would have eventually made the same or a similar journey? Honestly, I don't think I would have. Mm, okay. Because I was so in my orthodox head of how I, what I needed to do and be and become to get back to my maker. Mm. I was more driven by the journey Mm -hmm. than really, um, I didn't look outside that box. Now I did have a couple of close friends that had LGBTQ kids and I started listening, watching their stories. I did start questioning before my son came out like, I don't think that could be a choice. I don't, you know, so I did start questioning, but as far as really taking a stance and being brave enough to stand for the answers I've received, mm-hmm. probably not, Michael. That's mm. so sad. Mm. We wouldn't be sitting here. We wouldn't be sitting here. <laughs> Maybe we would. We don't know for sure. So I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I'm just, I'm trying to be perfectly honest i think unless you experience certain things in life you really as as humans we just stay in that whatever Mm. we've been taught and been given Mm -hmm. sometimes we don't even know like you said when you had to like really figure out your spirituality Mm -hmm. sometimes we don't even know why we believe what we believe right do you have another question Oh, I've got so many more questions, for sure. <laughs> we could keep going for a while. Yeah. Politically, like, I'm I'm not, like, I want to really understand, like, the whole procedure of marriage equality because it was legal for a minute. Did that stay or then did it stop until it was legalized mm-hmm. the on state, a federal level? Yeah, the state of Utah did threaten to rescind marriage licenses that has that had been issued but that never actually happened mm. okay awesome yeah but i do i always feel like utah was sort of like the one that pushed it to be legalized it was the first red for state everyone. yeah no it was, it was the first red state where marriage equality became the law of the land and then shortly after that oklahoma came through and you started having other unexpected victories yeah there was like a week or two after marriage equality came to utah where it really felt like every single day yeah i would look at the news and here's another state that Uh, now has marriage equality that was an awesome period of time yeah really i you know some not sometimes a lot of time uh utah gets a bad rap Mm. but i'm like really grateful that we live that we moved here in 2001 because i feel like so much good happens here Mm. and as far as the church is concerned, I think that you and I would agree on this. Like, they really trained us to be able to get shiz done. Mm-hmm. It's a very efficient <laughs> machine. Yes, we learned how to be leaders. We learned how to speak. We learned how to how evaluate do- things. We learned how, I also went on a mission, so we learned how to share our agenda mm-hmm. or, you know, so many positive things that the church taught us to help us be productive today, right? Definitely. Sometimes I wonder if they like that they did that to us. <laughs> <laughs> it's like they trained all of the people they who are now us. leading culture change. <laughs> yeah, but anyway, 
Wow. So, how are you and Seth doing? You're still married. We are. Yeah, we just... Hi, Seth. Hi, Seth. (laughs) (laughs) At our sixth wedding anniversary a few weeks ago. Wow. Um, And both really having a great time in Boston. Um, I'm doing, like I mentioned, a second postdoctoral fellowship in neurology right now. And Seth is doing his PhD in history. And he's focusing on 20th century political history. Um, And in particular... Right now, he's focusing on the history of conversion therapy. Mm-hmm. And that in and of itself has been a growth process for both both of us. Because I think that he and I were expecting to discover a very hate-driven history with conversion right. therapy. Right. I think that he and I both anticipated that when you got to the roots of conversion therapy in the history of medicine, that you would see really ugly bigotry Mm -hmm. but uh, the story as it usually is is more complex than that yeah and you have physicians who in a lot of ways were pushing culture forward in a more compassionate direction because before the genesis of conversion therapy the idea is that well if you were homosexual like you were you're demonic or you're a criminal and so if you're, taking, if you're looking at three different ways to understand homosexuality, one as criminality, one as demonic possession, or a third one as illness or mental illness, right? of those three options, yeah. mental illness is actually a much more compassionate, explanatory narrative. It's wrong, but relative to the cultural moment yeah. at the time that conversion therapy it was, was really coming forward, it was progress relative to where mm-hmm. society was. Didn't you end up being a plaintiff Mm -hmm. in a lawsuit against reparative therapy? That's right. Um, So the name of the lawsuit was Ferguson v. Jonah. And Jonah was an acronym for Jews offering new alternatives to homosexuality. When I was living in New York City, uh, I was told about this organization that was run by uh, Orthodox Jewish individuals, but who employed a life coach who was LDS. And so there was kind of this religious hybrid of, you know, Mormons and Jewish individuals who were seeking to reorient sexually and emotionally. Horrible things happened there, (laughs) which, again, happy to talk about in more depth. But the gist of it is that there was enough fraudulence and enough unconscionable behavior that we filed a lawsuit against this organization in the state of New Jersey and um, prevailed against them in a court of law, finding them liable for both consumer fraud and unconscionable business practices. It's at this point, the first of its kind lawsuit against a conversion therapy provider, but I'm really hopeful that it can end up being a template for a lot more people to come forward and to seek justice. That's awesome. So, you did say that you'd be willing. I think there's probably parts that um, are too hard to talk about, but just because I think a lot of the audience or, like I said, reparative therapy isn't even something that's talked about or a lot of people are in denial that it even happens. Mm-hmm. What were some of the things that happened to you that drove you to take action against them? Yeah, I would put the events into two categories One 
a category of acute trauma. So, you know, for example, a situation in which you're sexually abused by someone. That's an acutely traumatic event. Um, the second category I would identify is um, one where it's more of a, a, a persistent trauma. So I think that people intuitively understand why acute trauma is so damaging. Mm-hmm. If something happens to you where you're experiencing you know, physical or sexual abuse, like that yeah. now is a memory that haunts you for a very long time. Right. Um, but even just the perpetual message that you're broken and there's something wrong with you, that in and of itself eats away at you and is very damaging. So even if an individual who's gone through conversion therapy doesn't have an acutely traumatic moment Mm -hmm. that they can report on, having that perpetual message that you're not good enough, you're broken, if you tried hard enough, you could change yourself and be fixed, quote unquote, that is a very damaging message to just sit with for years and years and years. It's like you're accountable. (laughs) It sounds like... um yeah, all the negative messages. I don't understand how they think it helps you. I mean, did they... Oh, that's probably just a whole other podcast. I don't know, like, in these sessions that they give you tools. But it sounds like, to me, all they did is break you down. Break you down and break you down and break you down. Yeah. Whatever methods they decided to use. And one of the common themes through conversion therapy, unfortunately is this notion that your sexual identity or your gender identity is something other than heterosexual or something other than cisgender because your parents failed you in some way. Yes. Um, And so what ends up happening typically is that family systems become damaged. So it's not just that the individual ends up having psychological and emotional trauma, but that their entire family system has now been traumatized by these false narratives that have been used to essentially weaponize family relationships for the purpose of the therapist who has an agenda. Yeah, I, I think that, um, so when my son came out, I, I started researching like the church's stance throughout the history, you know. It didn't bring me a lot of comfort, mm. but I too remember it was like overbearing mother, mm-hmm. non-existent father. I'm like, oh, for hell's sake, mm-hmm. all my kids should be gay. Right. <laughs> no, and it's really it's really unfair. It has some similarities to the ways that autism used to also be blamed on parenting. The term was quote unquote refrigerator mothers. Oh yeah. Where if the mother was too cold and too distant, then the child would be autistic. And it's like, oh my gosh, let's give moms a break. If you're oh, yeah. too warm, your kid's gay. If you're too cold, your kid's autistic. Yeah. It's like everything ends up somehow being blamed on the mother and Yeah, and I never even pictured myself as being overbearing. My kids are probably laughing right now if they, if they listen. But, um, you know, my husband definitely wasn't non-existent. He's travel. He has a career, but always there for my children, for our children. So, but when you're given those labels, mm. you internalize them yeah. because you're trying to make sense of a situation, right? And, yeah. I, and, and I think that's really important that you brought that out, that it not only the person in prayer to therapy is going through this, but their whole structure, their family and everything else is somehow broken. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we did exercises uh, where we were acting out the 
symbolic process of breaking our relationships with our parents. So, for example, in these group exercises, have one man who literally with ropes is tied to another person who represents their mother. And during the quote-unquote psychodynamic exercise, they have to break these ropes and develop this anger toward their mother in order to undo this bond that is keeping them homosexual. It's So it gets really nutty really quickly. Oh, my gosh. Well, Michael, you know, I'm just a person. But from my mouth to your ears, you are perfect. I am so sorry you had to go through that. I'm so sorry that your relationship with God or Mother in Heaven was always contingent on you being straight. I'm sorry for the pain that you've experienced. And I want you to know from me that I've had um, moments where I know my LGBT brothers and sisters are completely perfect, that you're part of the plan, that mm. you're supposed to be here, that I have learned so much from my LGBT siblings. You know, you asked that question earlier, would you be like this if your son didn't come out? I'm just so sad. Like, I feel like that's one of my greatest blessings among trillions I've had in my life, mm. that my son was able to open up my eyes to a part of humanity that I never even considered. Hmm. So there's uh, an icon. So in um, Eastern Orthodox Christianity, they make these beautiful two-dimensional images, usually on wood panels, um, and call them icons. And there's an icon of Joseph of Egypt. Mm -hmm. And he has a scroll, and it says, Fear not, for I am God's. Ye took counsel against me for evil, but God took counsel for me for good. As I have continued searching spiritually and seeking to integrate who I am, both with a spiritual identity and a sexual identity as a whole person, I have continually felt like, wow, the things that gender and sexual minorities have to teach and to offer to our culture are these blessings that we're being resistant to receiving right now. Having that paradigm shift really take place over the coming years and the coming decades to celebrating, to including, to understanding the rich diversity of all of human beings is a place where uh, I think you know, however you understand God or divinity, but I, I feel like that spark is trying to lead us. Yeah. And again, I look over and over in scripture, whether it's this particular example of Joseph of Egypt, um, look in the New Testament and the Gospels, that repeatedly it's people who have been marginalized, who have been conspired against, who actually are the ones with a message yeah. and who actually have some kind of new light or knowledge to bring into society and into culture. Yeah, and, and they're the, the voice of change also. Well, this podcast has been so phenomenal. I mean, 
Thank you so much for making time, your busy schedule here in Salt Lake City. You'll be returning back to Boston and to Seth. <laughs> That's right. Thank you so much for having me. Um, the studio is yours if you ever are back in the area, particularly with Seth, and you guys want to come in and share your story together. That would be amazing. Um, and I just want to remind my audience, you know, these stories need to be heard. So listen and subscribe and share this with your family, your friends. And let's get the word out. Let's start to sit with each other in uncomfortable places and start to understand humanity is much more complex than, than we have in our own little box. We need to be willing to listen to be able to, I think, to be a better human. Hmm. So is there anything you want to say in your parting Parting wisdom here. Parting wisdom, because you're just full of it. Seriously, not full of it. You're so full of it. I could sit with you for a week, right? I could. I, I, I mean, I've, I've developed this, like, little love for you sitting oh, here. Mutual. You're it's very, mutual. very special. Oh, well, I will say the same thing to you. Thank you. That's very kind. I would, the, I guess the one parting insight I'll say is um, that humility is a principle that, I don't think we're ever going to retire from using. Yeah. <laughs> I think that that as soon as we think that we've got it all figured out, yeah, that's our first clue that we're in trouble. Yeah, that we we you know my personal feeling and perspective is that we have to stay humble and teachable across our entire lifespan. Otherwise, we're kind of missing a major point of what we're doing here. Yeah, humility leads us to growth. I love that. Thank you for those parting words. All right. Well, have a great day, audience. Um, I got my tissue, and I've loved this time with, with Michael, and I hope that you listen to his words and that somehow it's changed your heart for good. This is Jill Hazard-Rowe with Human Stories.